Welcome to The Mystic and the Skeptic, the show that asks the tough questions and explores different alternatives to today's pressing issues, theories, or enigmas. A podcast devoted to the exploration of all things mystical, philosophical, scientific, political, conspiratorial, and cosmic. Join us in an exploration of the mystic skeptic mind space. In this week's show, our guest is Jeff Layden, Executive Director of the National Alliance for Mental Illness, or NAMI, Tennessee Chapter. He provides executive leadership to the statewide nonprofit organization, which focuses upon education, support, and advocacy for those impacted by mental illness. NAMI is a nationwide grassroots advocacy group representing families of people affected by mental disorders in the United States. NAMI provides psychoeducation, research, and support for people and their families and families impacted by mental illness through various public education and awareness activities. There are over a thousand NAMI chapters represented in all 50 states. Tell us about your background and how did you get involved in supporting people with mental health needs? I have had connection with mental illness and recovery and mental health, those kind of things, really since childhood. Both of my parents had quite a bit of treatment for mental health issues. My father was a physician. But he also was in psychiatric hospitals probably 30 times when I was uh, younger. And it, it really impacted life at home. And he was just uh, impacted quite a bit. He had bipolar disorder. And uh, it wasn't so easy to live with that. So I had that growing up. My mother had depression. She had shock treatments when she was younger. She was in psychiatric hospitals as well. And and therapy on meds, so I kind of grew up just uh, in a household that was impacted by mental illness. I did not plan for that to be a career, though. I went to college, and I wanted to, uh, to design sound, sound systems like stereos and speakers. I was interested in, in hi-fi equipment back then, but I kind of ran into calculus and, and math and and becoming an engineer did not look like a path for me, and I was taking psychology just as an elective kind of course and uh, learned about opportunities doing counseling, and I ended up getting a degree as a clinical social worker. So most of my my work life since then has been related to working um, in and around things related to mental health and addiction and recovery. If you could describe the work of your organization for those who are not familiar with it, what are the services that it provides and how many people are impacted by your work? NAMI, Tennessee, is one of, of uh, many state organizations. Basically, every state has a NAMI state office. We also have local, we use the term affiliates or chapters, and there's about 20 of those throughout Tennessee. Most of them are operated by the volunteers. So in the state office, we, we try to really be the voice to advocate for mental health in Tennessee. So that means we, we talk with the government. We try and impact the criminal justice system, the legislature, uh, providers about mental health, and a lot of what we do comes from the family perspective. So NAMI does not do treatment. There's no doctors or medications or counseling. 
and there's also typically no charge for our services. So it began with two mothers that had children with severe mental illness, and usually they were either blamed for the problems or ignored. And the mothers got together, and it grew to family members coming together to support each other and to share education and to advocate, and that's what we continue to do today. So it's a focus of support and education and advocacy where loved ones, doesn't have to be a parent, a loved one, it could be a, a, a mother, a father, a husband, a wife, a child, a sibling, a parent, a neighbor, and those that are involved with somebody that has serious mental illness learn from each other. So that's kind of the heart of it, that and the, the advocacy. So we have classes that we offer and we have support groups, all free, uh, that people learn just what is mental illness and how does it impact people. And somehow it helps families have less conflict. And, and we hope that the families will stay intact as opposed to we have so many homeless people, people in our jails that are, they've cut the family ties, they're, they're, they're alienated and isolated and not finding their way. And we have so much of that with people with serious mental illness. And I, when I talk about this, mental illness comes in degrees of severity, just like heart disease or any illness. There's many, many people with mental illness that are, uh, working jobs, having family lives, being productive, uh, appearing to be what you'd call stable, and you would never know that there's a mental health issue, which most of us sometime in our lives do have a mental health issue, but the serious mental illness, when it really interferes with, with people's lives, that's really what we're most focused on. So part of these... Um classes, is there a support group for caregivers? Um, you know, you have caregivers who um, are taking care of their elderly parents and they, there's fatigue that is related to that. Is that one of the issues that happens also with taking care of a loved one with mental health needs? It is, but it's more common that it's an adult child that the, the caregiver is concerned about. Uh, somehow, when it's the parents, uh, Usually the children are living their own lives and they're busy with the children and and it's it's they're not day to day involved the same way. Now with Alzheimer's there is issues with caring for elderly parents and we have a lot of people doing that and, and it's really difficult and it's kind of interesting because Alzheimer's we don't classify as a mental illness even though it certainly appears to be a disease of the brain. Uh but with the NAMI classes and support groups Sometimes it's a husband or wife, uh, but the most common would be it's a mother or father of an adult child that at some point begin to have symptoms and then ended up with the psychiatric hospitalization often or repeated hospitalizations, have difficulty uh, building an adult life, basically, uh, with work or, or um, education or relationships and had symptoms that interfered with those things. So any of us can have depression, but some of us uh, have depression that, that really interferes more in one's life, and, and those are more the kind of people that we see. And sadly, 
most people don't know about mommy and they, they're they're dealing with this with the loved one for years and years before they even find out about mommy. We're just not that well known. Um, probably because it's it's not a big dollar operation. So most of the work's done by volunteers. It's it's very much grassroots kind of thing and the classes and support groups are run by people that have been through it themselves and we train them. Um, so our, our support groups typically are not run, and our classes are not run by a licensed mental health professional. And that's why they're free and available to anybody. So how do you get your word out? Um, is it like the Green Party? Like when we interviewed the Green Party, we kept on asking, like, how come your numbers are not growing? How come we don't see more of you? And they get kind of... Um, covered up by other groups or they just don't have that many people? Is that one of the issues that you guys struggle with? We struggle with people being aware of NAMI, and so we do work to build a referral network. So we connect up with psychiatric hospitals, for example. But that doesn't mean that automatically when they do discharge planning, they're going to make a referral to NAMI. But we encourage psychiatric hospitals or mental health centers, if somebody's coming in and they're having uh, mental illness that's serious enough that it's really interfering in a person's life, that if there is a caregiver involved, a family member or a loved one, to make the referral. So we, we try to work to do that, which means our NAMI members will go out and visit at, the, at a local psychiatric hospital. Uh, so, for example, here in uh, the state offices in Nashville, so we will visit or ask people to visit a Parthenon Pavilion or Skyline or um, Vanderbilt Psychiatric Hospital to encourage those staff to make referrals. And then we um, we do try to reach out. We have a convention coming up. And we invite other professionals, people that work in a community mental health center, and that to um, make referrals as well. We similarly try to work through churches and clergy to make referrals. As far as the general public, from time to time we do offer things. Um, in May, it's Mental Health Month. So we worked with the city to light up the Korean War Memorial Bridge in Nashville and the the, the, uh, the public courthouse to light them green. And we did a press conference and TV came out. So, But we're vying for news without paying publicists and um, hiring public relations firms and things like that. Uh, when, when Robin Williams uh, took his life, we rented a movie theater on the Vanderbilt campus and we showed a movie that had suicide in the movie. It's called Dead Poets Society. We had information there. We bought an ad in the Nashville scene. But these things are very slow as far as getting the word out. And I, I can't really compare us to, to uh, uh, you know, a political political movement, but we're trying to uh, get smarter with social media, uh, Facebook and Twitter and, and the like, and encourage people to spread the word that way. Uh, we try to be anywhere where, the, where mental illness comes up. So, uh, like police, we, we, we work with police, we visit legislators, uh, really everywhere, everywhere that we can go. And we're always looking for, for additional ways ourselves are in coalition with other organizations to work with folks with mental illness or addiction 
to get a public awareness uh, message out. So we have a speakers bureau where the program is called In Our Own Voice, where people will go out and, and talk about their story uh, if they've had mental illness and um, how they found some recovery, and, and they share that with, with groups. So little by little, it seems to be growing that there's more interest in mental illness there used to be such stigma, we didn't like to talk about it at all. And I'm told that 30 or 40 years ago, cancer was that way. It was just a secret, and we don't talk about it. So now there's, there's I think, more openness, and we just encourage people to, to be, be um, informed. Yeah, there's a weekly show. There was a show this morning uh, about um, on the NAMI Radio Hour, and it, it talked about Recovery Fest, which is an event coming up on the 24th of September, and it's recovery from anything, but a lot of the people that are there are coming from a perspective of recovery from alcohol or drug abuse, and there's going to be music and speakers and um, and uh, uh, tents with, with different organizations sharing information all, all for free, and it's on the 24th from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. Uh, on Woodlawn Avenue, uh, don't remember the name of the park, but anybody listening, if you Google Recovery Fest and Nashville, you'll find it, and it's the 24th of September. Tell us about what are some of the myths that people have about um, anybody that has a diagnosis. When I worked at a psych ward at the VA, um, they the psychologists mentioned that there are a lot of famous people or historical figures that now they're realizing they had a something that we consider a diagnosis or, or that we could diagnose them nowadays. And there's people who have suffered with all kinds of struggles uh, throughout their lives. So um, what are the stigmas and the myths that are keep being uh, perpetrated on people with mental health needs? Okay. First of all, it appears that it's more fashionable to say you have an alcohol or drug problem than you do to say you have a mental health problem. And the word mental illness, people don't even want to say it at all. And they'll try and turn it around and say mental health condition. Just mental illness sounds bad. Who would want to have that? But at, at the same time, these, these things are so common. So some diagnoses are, are less common, like schizophrenia is a scary one because people have hallucinations or delusions. And there's a lot of people with schizophrenia that um, they're kind of on their own and they look like something's wrong with them. Like you might see them on the street dressed um, in an unusual way, like wearing a coat when it's hot out or talking out loud to themselves. So schizophrenia is thought to be 1% or 2% of the population. So that's not real common. Depression and anxiety are very, very common, and most people experience depression or anxiety in their lifetimes. The lifetime prevalence is really, really high, and the issue is how bad is it? If the depression is so serious you can't get out of bed and you're having thoughts of suicide, that's pretty severe depression. There's other people walking around with depression, which just means they may have a lot of aches and pains for unknown reason. They may feel guilty. They may feel sad a lot. They, they may... Um, not enjoy things very much, but they're not in treatment either. So the the idea of I have to see a psychiatrist, I have to take a psychiatric 
medication people don't like to do. Although, at the same time, antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications are among the most prescribed medications of all. Other diagnoses can cause more trouble, like bipolar disorder, um, sometimes with the, the mood swings very high and very low, can be really challenging for the person and those around them, and it can be accompanied with, with, with delusions and hallucinations as well, which can make it look like schizophrenia, so that's very scary, and it can often result in hospitalization. So you have the, the, the more severe diagnoses like bipolar, schizophrenia, um, PTSD, severe depression, can be uh, maybe 5 to 10% of the population. It's a lot. Uh, and so it gets put in the back burner. Uh, we have separate treatment systems, so you go to the doctor and there's a medical system and we have a separate mental health system. And now there seems to be a movement more toward integrating mental health care and mental health care, which is a good thing, because just because you have mental health issues does not mean that you've got, you don't have uh, something that's causing pain or something physical in your body going on. Although at the same time, sometimes depression and anxiety can cause pain in the body that doctors can't find with an x-ray or, or a lab test in, in some cases. So there's stigma. There's a lot of famous people, yes, uh, that have had mental illness. Abraham Lincoln comes to mind. Uh, Patty Duke passed away in the last year. She was, uh, your older listeners may remember the Patty Duke show, and she played Helen Keller as a child in a famous movie that that came out long ago. It was in black and white. I remember it from in my childhood uh, where Helen Keller was deaf and mute and learns to speak, but Patty Duke was a child star and then she had bipolar disorder. She talked about it a lot. And then Carrie Fisher, who was Princess Leia in the Star Wars movies, has been a, a very, very much an advocate and upset about her mental health treatment. And then uh, more, more currently... Um, uh, Demi Lovato is a, a singer, and she's talked about about bipolar disorder. So we've got we've got people out there. Uh, there's um, actually we have two former Tennessee Titans football players are going to speak at at our conference about their journey toward recovery and recognizing that something was wrong. Uh, one of them is named David Ball. The other one is Gerald McGrath. And it's really unusual uh, for an athlete to talk about mental illness. I can only think of of two or three others that have been upfront about it. Um, and during their playing career, you know, almost none. But uh, so we're we're really pleased that that helps to take the stigma away. And when we find celebrities, if they'll share their story, then it, it helps to uh, let other people know that things can happen and, and that. So... Karen Carpenter was a very famous singer, and she had a very severe eating disorder, and she died at a young age. And that really shocked people and put eating disorders on the map uh, quite a few years, more, more than 30 years back. I would imagine many young people don't know who Karen Carpenter is today, but their parents probably would. 
so there is a stigma. Uh, it's we say that that mental illness is not a casserole illness, and what we mean by that is if you're in the hospital and you break your leg, your neighbors are going to bring you food often, or your church if you belong to a church. But people don't bring a casserole when someone made a suicide attempt and they ended up in a psychiatric hospital. It, it, it seems like we have to have shame about it, even though um, there's strong evidence that these are diseases of the brain and the brain works differently uh, and medication is often a treatment, um, although there's other treatments as well, but medication is often a treatment. But part of this whole thing for me is that mental illness is very perplexing and it's hard to know for sure when you have it or when you don't. And the person who has it sometimes doesn't believe they do. Uh, they may think that they're fine, but other people around them may think that things are, are really seriously wrong. We don't have a, have a blood test to say, oh, you have depression. Uh, it's really observational, and we look at a person's behavior and lists of symptoms to determine if they're mental illness or not. So that, that I think, makes things murky as well in terms of uh, what's really going on. But then if you live through it, uh, if you have a a manic episode with bipolar disorder, you might have a nice time and others around you may not be enjoying themselves and your your bank account may not enjoy it and consequences of some of your behavior you may not like later. But most of the other disorders are really disruptive to people uh, and cause really a lot of, of, of difficulty and misery. And at the same time, if we... If everybody kind of had normal moods, you know, what do we not have as a society in terms of art and creativity and new ideas and different ways of thinking and those things? So it's all very complex, but I do worry if in the future we, we edit certain genes out and, and make it disappear, you know, what are we going to be left as far as human variation and creativity and new ideas and things like that? You know, I really don't know. A gentleman named Risden Slate. Risden is a very interesting fellow. He's now a professor and author um, in Florida. He's at a university in Florida. And he's written a book that's all about the criminalization of mental illness. And Risden Slate knows about this firsthand because he has mental illness. He has bipolar disorder. And I can share that because he shared it publicly. And he has been in prison as well. But meanwhile, he found recovery and he got himself uh, through to get a PhD and is a professor now. But he's going to be talking about what's happening in our jails and prisons, which is a massive increase in people with mental illness being in jail and prison. We're very, very concerned about that. And Lynn Marie is a Grammy-nominated uh, singer, songwriter, and accordion player but she shares a story not unlike having a child with schizophrenia. In her situation, her child was born with some serious disabilities and continued to have them as they grew older. 
And then she became depressed and basically could not get off the couch. She had a hard time with reconciling that with the dreams and hopes that she had for her child. And now she she um, learned about that and, and sings and talks about that, how this has turned out in some ways to be a positive thing. And we have issues in, life, in our life, but how we can learn resiliency and strength and loving and caring from things and a movie. And it's called, it's about a, a mother that has bipolar disorder and her daughter is coming of age and it's time for her daughter to go off to college. Mother's having a crisis and how the family deals with, with mental illness versus children that, that want to um, reach their own dreams and what's our roles as family members and how we deal with all this. And I want to turn to um, mental health in the media or in the events that happen. Um, you know, every couple of weeks we hear of tragedies that involve um, mental health and, and gun violence. And, you know, the, the world is divided between talking about the need for treatment, for meds, and gun control. Uh, are these issues related, or, or is it, um, you know, kind of like a spin that, that people are, are taking and not really addressing the real issues when there's uh, a shooting or some type of um, attack that they always want to point to either guns or mental health? And is it, uh, I remember the psychologist at the VA saying that people with mental health uh, conditions have are as likely as as doing violent acts as people who don't have them. Is this true, and, and, and how is it uh, presented in the public? Well, I'm very troubled, of course, by the shootings that you are referring to, but I'm also troubled that mental illness seems to be the headline, and we're all conditioned to ask ourselves, is this a mentally ill person, and then the next thing is, is this a terrorist? And... Often one or the other may be true, but it still gives us a very false view that uh, most Muslims, for example, were in no way terrorists. Never met one, never thought about it, and it could make us afraid of a race or a whole group of people. Now, the same with mental illness. It could make us fear people. Now, what studies have shown is that there's more mentally ill people that are victims of violence, actually, than perpetrators. So, yes, some of these shootings are done by somebody that's mentally ill. You could even say you have to be mentally ill to pick up a gun and shoot up a bunch of people in a, in a shopping mall, and I, I'd agree with that. Um, it's something in, some, in, in someone's right mind they would not do. But at the same time, when you look at the numbers of murders and shootings, um, isn't it funny you never hear about alcohol and shooting or drug abuse and shooting, but there's a whole lot more deaths related to alcohol and, and drug abuse than mental illness because alcohol and drugs can make somebody impulsive. They can impair somebody's judgment also. But there are, of all the people that have hallucinations and delusions, a very, very, very small percentage can have a delusion. History's taught us that. It can make them dangerous to self or others. And when we find somebody that we believe to be dangerous to themselves or others, they end up put in a psychiatric hospital. And part of that is, is to help them get better, 
But part of that, quite frankly, is to keep us safe as well. And then the hospital needs to keep them there until they determine they're no longer a danger to themselves or others, which we're able to do pretty well most of the time. I get nervous about the whole thing because are we going to lock somebody up because we think one day they might be dangerous in the future? And that could be anybody. You take somebody that they break up with a spouse or they have a loss or job loss or anything, anybody can be unpredictable. And most of us usually find other ways to cope. But being humans, there are there are tragic acts that happen. So yes, we do really believe that we need to have accessible mental health care. And it shouldn't matter if you have a big income or a little income. At NAMI, Tennessee, we are very much, sorry about that, um, in NAMI, Tennessee, we very much want to see Ensure Tennessee or some kind of Medicaid expansion to pass so that everybody will have access to health insurance for medical illness and for addiction and for substance abuse. So we need good, accessible treatment for everybody. And the treatment system is really complex. I use the term Byzantine on how to get mental health help. If you've got a physical problem, you go to the doctor, they may send you to the hospital for an x-ray test. And then they give, they give you a plan and they send you somewhere. But if you have, um, let's say, you've, you're suicidal or you have thoughts of hurting somebody else, where do you go? You might go to the emergency room and then, then uh, you may end up in a psychiatric hospital and who knows what your follow-up will be. You know, I think it's better if somebody starts, if they, if they know they're having trouble, if they're having crying spells or feelings of depression or they can't sleep or or their thoughts are obsessively around a breakup or something, you know, something like that that's disturbing or symptoms of anxiety or depression, get some help early. We talk about before stage four in mental health. Uh, cancer, we talk about stage four is very late, and treatment is harder and more expensive and more extreme. So the same with mental health. Let's try to get people some help early on before crisis situations develop. Um, so that won't probably eliminate every single thing, but to have a accessible, high-quality system of care is really, really important. Having police officer training is important because we also have police shootings of many of people around the country, and there's training for police that tends to reduce the numbers of those, those outcomes. Uh, we don't take a stand on, on guns um, for or against, and quite frankly, part of that is we don't even stop to see how we feel about it because we see the issue is so politicized that if we, as NAMI, said we want to limit access to guns, there's a whole lot of people that would not listen to anything else NAMI has to say because there's many people that, that put that issue above any other political issue. However, I would be comfortable saying if somebody is feeling like they could be a danger to self or others, lock up the weapons, please. Lock up the weapons. Uh, you can take your, your weapons to the police. They'll hold them or get them out of the house to um, a, a friend or a relative. Uh, that we, we can say. Uh, because now we're not talking about second 
Amendment rights. We're talking about just health and safety. And and so there's that. But it's too easy to be in, have a knee-jerk reaction. It, it's the mentally ill people. We have to fear them. Well, these these tragic incidents are horrible, and they, they make the headlines. But part of the real-life story is that human beings can be unpredictable, and they they can do sometimes some bad things. And some of what we try to teach can help with that. Um, having a support system. The reason we do family education and support is so people are not alone and isolated. I think being alone and isolated is bad for your mental health, whether you've had a history of mental illness or whether you don't. That, that we need to have connection with other people in a, a place where we feel we're accepted and where we belong, where we're heard, where we're respected. Having work, if we if we want work, or having education and learning, learning, or finding ways to help other people or be connected in the society different ways uh, as a volunteer in a faith community. Those kind of things make people healthier and can reduce these kind of things. So the idea we should fear people with mental illness is scary to me because it can drive people underground. Well, I certainly don't want to be one of those people because we're afraid of them, and that, that won't help anybody. The mother of one of the Columbine shooters just wrote a book, and she claims that depression was the cause for the rampage they were part of. Is it possible that this this is a way to diffuse some of the problems in our culture dealing with fascination with violence and want to blame it on something like depression? I can't claim really a lot of expertise on that, but I'll start off and say that we used to talk about music in the 70s and that that might make people to be violent, and there was talk about different groups and the lyrics. Um, you know, what's the chicken and what's the egg? If somebody if somebody feels really like an outcast for whatever reason, and they feel that nobody likes them, like, I think being bullied it would be more of a risk in depression, but somebody bullying, being bullied a lot, probably will feel depressed. But, you know, is it the bullying? Is it the depression? Um, in rare cases, depression can turn into psychosis. And with psychosis, you get a lot more disruption. If it's not, it, we, we think of psychosis as what's called a thought disorder, where our thinking is just impaired, and it may be things we see aren't there. We may believe things like that the CIA is after us or something like that. So depression is what we call a mood disorder. So in and of itself, the person that's most likely to have any danger during depression would be the person themselves. And next might be children. Like uh, somebody, there was a mother once that drove her children into a lake and killed herself and the children. And it's horribly upsetting when we hear these cases. But in a case like that, the mother's thinking might have been, life is so horrible and life is so bleak and I want to save them, which sounds, I use the term, crazy to me right now to think that way. But I imagine that the mother that would kill her children and herself would feel that way. These events, incidents are, thank God, very, very rare. And if we want to be worried, I think, you know, why don't we worry about suicide? Our suicide numbers are 
up there with, with, with car crash deaths, which are all much more than, than these violence, other violence things. But of course, if you were a Columbine, you know, one is too many. And if it's your loved one or yourself, I mean, it's, it's, it's horrific. So bottom line, uh, there's, there's many, 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 many cases of depression that never end up with anybody hurting themselves. And it's even more rare to be wanting to hurt somebody else. But if it turns into psychosis, which maybe there was something else going on and it, it hadn't happened yet, but uh, stress and depression and, and the psychosis appears, which he's had psychosis going back to days of the Bible. It's not a new thing. Uh, depression seems to be a little bit newer on the scene in terms of recognizing it as a is a health issue. So, first, I haven't read the book, and I, you know, I'm not a, a researcher. But there's a whole lot more suicide deaths than uh, which you could say. Well, I'm not as worried about that. They just hurt themselves. They were miserable. You could say that. It would be foolish to say because suicide is about distorted thinking, where somebody could feel like my pain will not go away. My pain is unbearable and it won't get better no matter what I do. When someone thinks that, and as they've got a time machine, they really don't know whether they could be better or not. But suicide does not just end the life of the individual. Most people have families, and it's really, really difficult for their loved ones and other people, and it doesn't just end with them, so it does hurt other people. So I'm not equating an innocent person just minding their own business that's shot by somebody with suicide, but there's just a lot more deaths, you know, with the suicide and with car wrecks. So I'm okay with looking at violence and trying to learn about it, but I hope we'd look at violence toward ourselves also and not just these other cases, which, I mean, one's too many. But but let's try and help everybody and not just scapegoat one thing because it's something we don't like or we're afraid of it. So in the political arena, they've been talking about suicide and the, they've been, the two candidates have been uh, debating about how to help the, you know, there's 22 people a day that commit suicide um, who are veterans. Do you believe there are any policies that could address mental health needs of veterans that would be effective or is it just something that is being tossed around during the political uh, time, and then once someone gets in office, they they don't really have anything as a plan to really help veterans in, in that in that one particular issue. Yeah, I'm glad you asked about that for a couple reasons. Uh, first of all, NAMI Tennessee has just begun a new program called NAMI Homefront, and NAMI Homefront. Is a, is a class, an educational class for caregivers of veterans that have severe mental illness. So we believe that that's the best way that we can help as an organization. And we offer this class here at Tennessee, and it's free, uh, NAMI Homefront. And the information about that you can also find at our website, NAMITN.org. Um, we have an e-news also. You can sign up for on our website, and it lists all the upcoming classes. But that helps. But I think part of the issue with veterans 
is there's a lot of mental illness. I don't have percentages, but there's a good bit. And the Army's been trying to do better in addressing it, but they've got a ways to go uh, from from articles I've read, at least. Uh, sometimes they do very good, and they they get people some early help and get them back with their buddies, and that does seem to help some people. But we have a whole lot of veterans come back with with mental illness. So first of all, they don't get a Purple Heart. So if you have PTSD, your buddy was killed, you have PTSD, you're disabled, it's not a Purple Heart. Why? I have no idea. They're injured. I mean, imagine the trauma that you may experience seeing, seeing people around you killed in wartime. We know that PTSD is real, and the symptoms of PTSD and depression and things like that can be really difficult for loved ones, which is why our class, if the family breaks up, then the, the veteran is out on their own with the... And we have a lot of them in our jails, and a lot of them homeless, and a lot of suicides. Uh, the other part that's interesting to me is I hope that these these numbers teach us that mental illness is not weakness, and it's not the person's fault, and they're not doing it for attention, or they're not doing it because they don't want to work, or any of the things that we, we look at somebody, we don't understand why they can't just act right sometimes. I think that's the most common feeling of family members that haven't had education. They should, they look okay. Why can't they just go to work or be reasonable or not have anger, helpers, and things of that nature? So, it's teaching us that this is real. Uh, now, we do have to have treatment for veterans and non-veterans. So I've been hearing that there's issues with VAs. I can't speak for the VA in Tennessee, but I support when our, when our candidates say, uh, like Donald Trump said, well, if they can't get into the VA, then they should be able to go somewhere else and get an appointment at a reasonable time. Well, we believe that access is, is important for everybody, and it's doubly important for our veterans. I believe that they've served us, and we, we owe them that. So if a veteran uh, cannot be seen quickly enough, there should be other places where they could go. And we've also learned that some veterans don't trust the VA at all, and then we need to have other other kind of systems. Uh, there's vet centers that have opened up, but... Yeah, uh, veterans should have the choice, in my opinion, to go to private mental health people, to clinicians or agencies and get services um, as well because there's, again, stigma in the VA. Can people admit they have mental illness and still keep their career? You know, if they're active duty, you know, I'm not really sure uh, where that is. But it's the same with physical illnesses as well. If if veterans can't get treatment, high-quality treatment quickly enough in, in the veteran system, they should be able to go to other systems. That would be, be my hope. And and I I talk to legislators about veterans as part of my advocacy, not just for what we're doing, but that, that, that they're taken care of. But really, it makes it real clear this is real illnesses, but they, 
again, it looks different because there's not a blood test to say, oh, look, you have uh, diabetes. So it's, it's, it's more confusing, but I think that there's more openness amongst the military and veterans that these are real issues and treatment's not a bad thing. Now, I watch with interest the debate about medical marijuana, and I hear people say that the medical marijuana is more helpful than than um, pain meds and tranquilizers and those things. I sure hope we have a whole lot more research. And marijuana recently was the FDA had to review whether they were going to leave it a Schedule One drug or not. And I'm not talking about being for or against marijuana, but there's evidence that for for pain, and we have we have so many states with medical marijuana. I hope we study it to see if it's uh, if it's good for PTSD and chronic pain and and some of these things that are are issues for our veterans. Because it, you know, what is the trigger for for some of what they've had? There's there's traumatic incidents, but there's also trying to fit back into society, maybe losing support in relationships. In the military, they've got camaraderie of their their, their unit and their buddies, and, you know, is their job, is their family, is their uh, fitting into society, how different is society from, from life the way it is when they're, when they're in the military. So I'm not saying I'm an expert on this, but it seems like as a society... In all areas, uh, we need to do a lot better, and with veterans, it's one of them. Is there enough financial support available for organizations like yours, or um, is it, um, you know, when the government thinks about supporting different causes, is mental health in the, in the back burner at this time? Well, first let me tell you about the publicly funded mental health system. So as I mentioned earlier, Tennessee does not have Medicaid expansion. So when we have a low-income population that does not have insurance, they need to go to the publicly funded health care system. That system is underfunded for sure and with caseloads too large, with rates, payment reimbursement rates too low, it makes it hard for the mental health and addiction providers to attract and maintain high-quality staff. So it is, I think, underfunded. And then we don't have enough capacity for many things. There's not enough psychiatrists, and there's not enough addiction treatment. We've got a big increase with heroin usage in Tennessee and other parts of the country, but there's not enough treatment for, for substance abuse recovery. And with mental health, I think re reimbursement rates are too low for a lot of things. And... As far as the family education that we're talking about, there's no insurance that pays for it, period, that I know of. And if insurance did pay for it, it would be a lot more commonly available. Where if someone goes into the hospital right at the same time, there'd be an effort to get the loved ones into the family education and support, which has been shown to help promote recovery. Uh, so I think we are underfunded quite a bit. Uh, Tennessee does not have an income tax. Tennessee also, unlike some other places where I've been, does not have local tax levies. 
So in some communities, the city or the county will have a tax levy, and they can have additional services that way. Uh, I think that we, we have too many people in jail and not enough people in community treatment. We have way too little what I would call residential treatment. So if you have an individual that they basically burned out the family after a while, they they went through their 20s and they're older and they stay up and pace and sleep during the day and maybe smoke and things the family's not comfortable with. Uh, the family doesn't understand why they're not working. Uh, somebody like that would be better off maybe in their own place, but with some supervision. But we've got not a lot of residential services. We have people living in, in unlicensed or licensed, but really not supervised group homes, um, people that are on disability, and that's that's just not not ideal. I think we should do better as a society, for sure. You know, I'm curious about the farm and if somebody has mental illness, if they can be maintained, um, and is there understanding and acceptance, or, or after a while do they feel they don't fit in and, and move on? You know, I'm curious about that. I'd like to, to hear if you want to talk about that. But I, I think that we're, we're underfunded in the no-ten care. Uh, you need to be have a serious disability or be a pregnant mother or a child to have ten care. So there's a lot of people walking around without insurance, although we do have, there is a mental health safety net that will cover doctors and medications, but there's so much more to, to mental health recovery than doctors and medications, such as getting a job. Uh, we, there's a thing called IPS, which is stands for Individual um, IPS, I'm blanking on the P. Individualized placement support, individualized placement support, where somebody gets a vocational rehab counselor and a mental health counselor, and the goal is to get them working, and that working promotes recovery instead of waiting for somebody to get all the way better, and then we'll have to get a, a job, and then it's probably a low-level job, like a dishwasher or a, uh, somebody to, to do... Uh, um, cleaning or custodial work. Not that we don't need those people, but some folks will find it more motivating to strive to what they dream to do, and maybe they can do it. So supportive employment for people with disabilities massively underfunded. It's one of the things that NAMI, uh, we, um, we advocate for, for funding uh, through the government. Um, for us personally, we do get some money uh, from state government, it's but I mean our our whole budget is a little bit more than than a half a million dollars, and we're a statewide organization, so we have a staff of nine, and we are always trying to raise money so we can add more programs and more services. Wonderful. Well, I really appreciate your time. The the other question, the last question I had for you was, what role does spirituality, community support, and being well integrated to society um, have in people who have a diagnosis or a mental health condition? 
being able to thrive, but in relation to that, also people with trauma. And um, how can people from their community or, or individuals come around and be of support since it's such a draining and difficult thing for a lot of people? Well, that's two questions, and they're great questions. All your questions have been very, very insightful, in, in my opinion, and I hope I've been able to share some some good information. Let me talk about trauma first. There's increasing awareness that trauma is behind a lot of addiction and mental illness. So, pardon me, we talk about trauma-informed care and teaching about trauma, but we also talk about children and trying to um, prevent trauma. So there's a thing called ACEs, which is a movement to learn about adverse childhood episodes. And there's various groups trying to work to reduce them. And that has promise as long as we don't blame mom and dad for everything. So the ACEs movement is something to watch. It may be a, a good topic for another another show. Uh, but the other part is wanting to reduce stigma and say that these things are illnesses that, that people can have. And we don't want to shun people. If somebody says I have bipolar disorder, hopefully you can still be their friend. Um, so many people are on medications and they, they keep it quiet. And we've got this view of the most extreme case when we talk about mental illness. So maybe I can help reduce that by saying mental health condition. And then we we think just of a broader spectrum and not just uh, the homeless person that's talking out loud. Um, but some of the things that we can do in society, well, first of all, we also touched on spirituality. Um, some churches are better than others, or temples, or faith communities, in accepting somebody that doesn't have fancy clothes on a fancy car. So there are our faith communities where there seems to be a premium on that, which I understand because the donations is what helps to build the nice expensive building and 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 you have to make people that are donating happy. So you've got some of that. So a church or faith community to get some basic knowledge of what is mental illness and how can I be accepting. There's, there's uh, people out there that We'll work with churches and faith communities to help them to be better accepting. NAMI can provide consultation in that area as well. Uh, that in a church community or faith community or any community, there's going to be addiction and child abuse and depression and Alzheimer's and, and, and um, sexual abuse and all these different kinds of things. We need to learn about them and learn how to deal with them. Just kicking somebody out is not, not the way to solve everything. So to have policies and have education and have support, but to know where to refer people. There is help if someone's got a mental health disorder. There is help if someone's got a, a substance abuse issue. So, so there's those things. There are churches that have told people just, just pray more. What I would say to the faith community where their answer is pray more is would you tell somebody with a broken arm to pray more? So if you believe in modern science and medical treatment for a broken arm, please believe in it for mental health. At the same time, 
belonging to community promotes health and recovery. So that it can be a church, it can be a 12-step program, it can be a lot of things. I strongly believe that mental illness often can be isolating and alienating where people are uncomfortable being around people. They feel less than maybe. They may feel they're being judged or talked about, and there could even be some truth in that. So being able to accept differences, not fear differences, um, is important, and um, not judging people is important, but it's not easy to do. We often tend to gravitate to our friends and not the person that's sitting by themselves that may be dressed a little bit different. Um, But to make an effort to make people be part of things is the advice that I would give, whatever kind of organization it is, and, and it's an accepting of differences that if we take the time Usually people that, well, we all have differences, but usually people that may um, have some visible difference of some type may also have some gifts for you and things that you can learn um, as an individual or as an organization. So I think that we have to be aware that this is part of the human condition. And we have not talked about things like the autism spectrum disorder, uh, where we've got children growing up and there, there's issues related to interpersonal relationships and personality and, and those things, but but that's part of the human condition. We we want to embrace diversity and we're we're trying to learn more about diversity actually in the economy and it doesn't just mean racial diversity uh, but that we want to uh work on, on that and meaning that we want to include people with differences and that's not mental health specific but but I think that's good for any kind of organization. Well, thank you so much for your time. We spread the word about your events. We would like to do that. Well, I appreciate that very much. And it's not just the events. Um, we we look for teachers. I mentioned the NAMI Homefront, which is for family members of a veteran with mental illness. Well, once or twice a year, we train teachers. So I look for somebody that's in that situation where they are a family member of an of a veteran that's had mental illness. That's who we want to teach our class. So we train them. Um, so there's those opportunities. We also have the classes for the caregivers and support groups. So anybody that wants to kind of see what we're up to, the really the best way to learn about what's happening with NAMI is to go to our webpage, namitn.org, and at the bottom... It's, there's a button that says sign sign up for e-news. Go uh, click on that, sign up for the e-news, or the NAMI Tennessee Facebook page or Twitter. There's a lot of what's going on there, too. You can join NAMI. You go to nami.org and join NAMI, and then there's a national organization. A lot of information there about mental illness and all these different programs and events and things during the year. Uh, in, in October, there's Mental Illness Awareness Month, so communities can do an activity during Mental Illness Awareness Month. There's toolkits on the NAMI.org for that. And um, anything that we can do to be of help, don't hesitate. And I'll just leave, a, leave you with the phone number, too. We have an 800 number. If anybody would like to talk to us, 800 467 3589, and I appreciate the opportunity to uh, 
talk about my favorite subject. Thank you for listening. We will be back next week with another episode of The Mystic and the Skeptic. Show descriptions and content are available online on our Facebook page and on SoundCloud.com. We would like to thank Radio Free Nashville for their technical guidance and assistance.